Welcome to Judges on Judging, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. This program is made possible through a partnership with the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Marjorie Rendell. Welcome to our inaugural podcast in the Rendell Center series, Judges on Judging. Uh, We started this series in order to educate and inform And the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement is something near and dear to my heart. I am its chairman, uh, Marjorie, otherwise known as Midge Rendell. I'm a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and I have been a trial judge. So I I have those perspectives to, to lend. But I'm hoping to interview a number of judges as we proceed through these podcasts. And I'm fortunate today to have a discussion with the Honorable Mitchell S. Goldberg, who is a judge on the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Mitch, welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, I will call Judge Goldberg Mitch, perhaps, and he may call me Midge, perhaps. So we'll see if this gets too confusing. But uh, Judge Goldberg has experience not only as a district court judge in the federal system, but also a state court judge in Pennsylvania and also importantly, he was a prosecuting attorney in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office and in the United States Attorney's Office in Philadelphia. So he comes with a, a great perspective, which will be very useful today as we discuss a case that is pending in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia uh, before Judge Emmett Sullivan. Uh, and we'll be talking about that case. It, it has become a very partisan case in the news But our goal today is to educate and inform as to what exactly is going on in the case so as to provide a perspective from the judge's standpoint, from the legal standpoint. Um, So, Mitch, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Michael Flynn case is about, uh, the substance of it, and procedurally where it stands. That's a huge question, uh, given what's been written about it, but maybe give us some of the facts of, of what it's about. The, uh, the case against uh, Mr. Flynn that's in front of uh, Judge Sullivan in, in Washington, it really centers around one uh, date and then like all stories, there's, there's a lot of uh, detail to it, but the date is January 24th, 2017. And that's the date that FBI agents from the counterintelligence unit um, interviewed uh, Michael Flynn. And the interview was part of the uh, counterintelligence unit's investigation into allegations of Russian interference in the last election. And Flynn uh, was interviewed along with a lot of other people uh, but was interviewed, and I'm taking this from the government's motion to withdraw the charges, um, which we'll discuss in a second. Uh, Flynn had been a foreign policy advisor to President Trump during the Trump campaign. Um, it was known that he had had prior contacts with, and the motion that uses the phrase, Russian entities, um, and that included... Um, and specifically a Russian ambassador. There were alleged to have been 29 calls. There were transcripts of these calls between 
Flynn and the ambassador and the interview that occurred with the FBI and Flynn was about uh, those contacts with the Russians and then the Department of Justice uh, later after examining uh, in conjunction with the FBI, after examining uh, Mr. Flynn's answers, determined that he had provided false information during that interview, which is a federal crime, uh, especially to the FBI. And here so, was so he. So he was asked certain questions about what was said on those conversations, and the the allegation is that he had not spoken truthfully about what he had said on those calls. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So the, the charges that came from that come under uh, federal criminal statute. Uh, it's under, it's codified under 1001A2, and that is false statements to the FBI. Um, so our audience can, can Google it if they want to. <laughs> if they want to. Um, there, uh, after that, uh, there was um, a plea hearing. Um, the plea hearing occurred, and we can talk about that in, in detail, Midge, if you want, but the plea hearing occurred um, with a full colloquy. So he was um, charged, and he decided to plead guilty, correct, correct. to those charges, and he, he was represented by counsel at the time? He was, and the... Okay. the Charges were brought on November 30th, 2017. Remember, the interview was January 24th, uh, 2017. So within the same year, the charges were brought. And, and these are the kinds of proceedings that you preside over all the time, correct? When someone takes a, a guilty plea, um, does that happen? I'm sorry, could you say again? Yes. Uh, these proceedings, we say a guilty plea and a colloquy. Um, our audience, some of whom are teachers, will not know what this is, but I was a district court judge, you were a district court judge. The defendant comes in and he pleads to the charges, and it's a pretty elaborate procedure because it's extremely important that someone's saying, yes, I did this, and they're gonna be convicted. So maybe you can describe what, what goes on in a, a plea colloquy. Sure, so the, the, the essence of the plea colloquy is that the defendant is going to waive his right to a trial and, in, and then accept responsibility and say, I actually did what was alleged to have, he, I, I've done with what I've been charged with. So in order for someone to go through that process and for a district court judge to um, accept a plea, there has to be an extensive colloquy, which essentially is the defendant um, the, and the judge, the judge has to make sure that the defendant um, is waiving all of their rights knowingly and voluntarily and intelligently before the judge can just say, well, I accept your plea. And it, there's an extensive colloquy that goes on during that process. And that colloquy, uh, and I reviewed it, because uh, it's publicly available with, uh, with Mr. Flynn, that colloquy went on uh, at a plea hearing on December the 1st, 2017. Um, and the defendant is placed under oath. Uh, the judge advised 
typically advises that uh, it's, it's critical that the defendant fully understands all the rights they are waiving. Um, the defendant has to understand that their questions have to, uh, the answers to the questions have to be truthful, which is pertinent to the Flynn case because now the government is moving to withdraw this, these charges. And during this colloquy, doesn't the government have to outline exactly what it would have proven and that the elements of the offense, um, that it could prove the elements of the offense? So it's, it's pretty detailed, not just vis-a-vis -vis the judge and the defendant, but also the government has to offer and say, we could, we could prove this and this satisfies all the elements of the crime. Yes. And um, it... it it varies in vis-a-vis -vis the complexity of cases. Sometimes there's a, a two-minute summary of the facts, and sometimes there's an extensive half-hour summary of the facts. And in the Flynn case, I've reviewed that, and, and the government gave a pretty extensive, uh, pretty extensive explanation of the facts to which uh, they said that Mr. Flynn had committed the uh, the crimes and. Um, they they laid out those facts. I think I could, Mitch. I think I could summarize them without uh, putting the listeners to sleep. If you want me to summarize the facts, <laughs> well, why don't we just go towards? Uh, I think one of the important things as a judge, you realize that you want this colloquy to be um, pretty thorough, because very often defendants will, after the fact, say, "Oh, I didn't really understand this. I want to withdraw my guilty plea." My lawyer didn't advise me, et cetera, et cetera. I've had, I had situations where, um, you know, that occurred and, and it, it can occur. So we, you kind of do belt and suspenders with these colloquies. Um, okay. So let's fast forward though. Let's um, talk about what happened thereafter. So we're at the end of 2017. Um, now as the case then proceeds before Judge Sullivan at some point, I think it's transferred to him uh, at some point in time. So we fast forward, that's the end of 2017. Um, Flynn is not sentenced. What would happen normally after that, you'd have a pre-sentence report um, and he is not sentenced, uh, but the case is still pending. And then, then what happens between then and now? That's a pretty long period of time. Um, yeah, a, lot, a lot's happened, but the essence is, it, is that Flynn, I believe, has filed two motions. One was a motion to withdraw his plea. So we talked about there was an extensive colloquy. He understood all the rights he was giving up. He agreed that he committed the facts, which formed the basis of the, um, of, of the charges. And thereafter, and I'm not sure uh, his counsel situation, but thereafter, he uh, filed what's called a motion to withdraw the plea. Now, this is significant because this is after a judge has said, based on the waiver of your rights and the facts that are in front of me, I find you guilty. So it's important to, to stress here that there had been a conviction. So there's different standards uh, for a motion to withdraw a plea uh, for when you, if you file it before you're, you are um, sentenced and this was before he was sentenced or after he sentenced. So he followed it before sentencing. Sentencing has not occurred. And then also, I believe he's also filed a motion to dismiss the indictment 
uh, based on some type of prosecutorial mis misconduct. So those two items are pending currently, I believe. Okay, let me, let me offer a, a, a uh, speculation. Uh, I was told by someone that probably the sentencing was delayed, and maybe this is in the record, uh, because uh, if a defendant cooperates in investigations, that can be taken into account in his sentence. And there's some reason to believe that there was a delay in the sentencing, almost uh, per perhaps to his benefit, that if he cooperated more, the sentence would be less. That, that's speculation on my part, but I, someone had mentioned that to me. Um, now, the motion that was filed by the government to dismiss, it was called a motion to dismiss the case, essentially. Um, and I read that motion. I believe you have. I think it goes along two lines as I as I read it. First is that there was something unfair or untoward about the interview in the White House that it was done without um, notice to the White House. And although Mr. Flynn was told he could bring whomever he wanted, he I guess he sat alone for it. There's some. It seems to say that that was unfair. And then an allegation that. While he may have not, he may have done these things and said things that were not entirely accurate as to what was on the calls, that wasn't either material or relevant, um, and it needs to be under the statute. Is that was that your reading of what the what the motion said? Yes, and to, to go back for one second to your your point about the cooperation in in my review of the transcript of the plea hearing. There was discussion and a Q&A between the plea hearing judge and Mr. Flynn about that cooperation. And it was explained to him, that is Mr. Flynn, that uh, the cooperation really, the, the discretion to give him credit at a sentencing or not for the cooperation was left, would be left up, up to the government. But back to the, the motion, um, the essence of the, of the motion while the two motions I just discussed are pending, followed by Mr. Flynn, the government has filed what's called a Rule 48 motion. Oh, okay. That's what I was referring to and, yeah. and characterizing, if you will. Yes. Yes. And okay, they, so that's a Rule 48 motion to dismiss the case, um, and that would be uh, granted upon, upon leave of court. So that's pending before the judge. Now, Dismissing a case after a guilty plea and a conviction. Um, I was a district court judge, and I never had such a motion before me. Is this, is this normal? I mean, it's one thing to withdraw a guilty plea um, or with, to, to dismiss a case when it's an indictment or it's in process, if you will, but to dismiss a case after a conviction, I had not seen that as a district court judge, and I did not know if that's something that you're familiar with. As a state prosecutor, uh, state judge, federal prosecutor, federal judge, I've never seen a motion to, uh, by the government to withdraw a conviction based on a plea. And the research that that my staff and I have done, we haven't found a case similar to this one in, in any of the research we've done either. So my, my experience is consistent with yours. Okay, now Rule 48 
says upon leave of court. Um, so is there, what's a judge supposed to do? The government comes in and says, we want to dismiss this. We brought it. Okay, he was convicted, but we want to dismiss this. Um, you know, you haven't had such, you haven't had such a, a motion before you, but in order to decide such a, uh, such a motion, um, what Judge Sullivan did here is being um, questioned. He appointed a former judge to investigate and almost welcomed um, third party views as to what should happen here. Uh, but let's go back into the, the Rule 48. Upon leave of court, um, what's the concern? If, if the government wants to, to end the case, you know, why shouldn't the judge just, does the judge, you know, dispute this? Or why doesn't the judge say, well, of course, the government, the government brought the charges, let's dismiss the case. What's behind this upon leave of court aspect? Before uh, Rule, Rule 48 uh, and the part about the judge having to bless for, for lack of a, a better word or approve is probably a better word, um, a withdrawal of a, of a conviction, Prior to 1944 and, and the promulgation of Rule 48, there was no judicial discretion. The prosecution could do exactly what you said. They could bring charges, there could be a plea, and the prosecution could just pull the, the, uh, the conviction off the table at their discretion. But you're, you're absolutely right, Judge Rendell. There is clear language in Rule 48. It says the government may dismiss an indictment or information with leave of court. There hasn't been much written about this, so I don't envy Judge Sullivan and the decision he has to uh, make. And, and the part I'm talking about, the, the leave of court, there's only really, based on my research, been one United States Supreme Court case that has delved into it, and, they, and the Supreme Court didn't really do that deep of a dive. Um, it was leave of court, the United States Supreme Court said leave of court is to protect a defendant from prosecutorial harassment. So I would take this to mean government could get a conviction and then they could say, well, we believe further more serious charges are warranted, so we're going to withdraw the charges you've pled to, but you've got to plead to the more serious charges. And I think the Supreme but here, Court. that that can't be the problem. He's already been, uh, you know, he's been convicted. So, what what other interest is it is at play here? Well, it's a it's a it's a good question because that that scenario doesn't pertain to Mr. Flynn's case, and there's just not a whole lot of guidance um, from the Supreme Court. Now, the the circuit court, uh, the court you sit on, uh, you sit in, in Philadelphia, but the circuit court in D.C. Uh, they they have not written a whole lot on Rule 48, but they have said that the judge should really, really defer to the government's wishes. And unless there's some type of government bad faith, or, and the, and the phrase that's used a lot is, if the government's desire to withdraw the charges would not be in the public interest, then the judge would have the discretion to reject the government's request, but where Judge Sullivan, in my view, 
is wading into really uncharted waters is what's in the public interest. That's what yeah. makes his job, I think, so daunting. And I don't think we can talk or we should talk about what he's done in this case. That's going to actually is before um, the D.C. Circuit because the government has asked the Court of Appeals to mandamus Judge Sullivan. What that means is, and I know because I'm on the Court of Appeals, we get requests to mandamus a district court judge when someone believes that the judge has failed to do something that he or she is mandated to do by law, you can go into the Court of Appeals and say, please mandamus this judge and tell him or her to do what they're supposed to do according to law. And in fact, uh, the government did that here. Um, and what can happen then in, is two different things. You can see it's obvious that the judge is not doing what it, he or she needs to do and that Court of Appeals without further inquiry could issue a mandamus. But the, nor the more normal thing is to ask the judge to respond to the charge, where the judge gets the opportunity to say, well, wait a minute, this is, this is what I'm doing, and this is why I'm doing it. Um, and I believe that um, Judge Sullivan was to file yesterday, I'm not sure what's called the response to the mandamus, but it's been reported, it seems to be slanted in the press that the, somehow the, the Court of Appeals is slapping him down by having him respond, but actually it is crafted so as to give the district court judge the opportunity to say, okay, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm considering it, I'm looking at all sides. Uh, or sometimes when we would get that request, um, and it's a matter of the judge just not getting to a matter, you'd, you'd say, please respond, and then the judge handles the situation. So very often it's, a, it's used when, when there seems to be a delay and the judge is, you know, shirking duties. Here it's clearly... Um, so the judge can explain what he or she is doing, and uh, presumably they would, there would be the panel would decide the mandamus would say, well, the judge is justified in what he or she is doing, or judge, you're not justified, etc. So, um, but these are these are normal uh, procedures. Um, but I think it's it's interesting that the government um, took the additional step, not only asking to dismiss, but having the Court of Appeals saying to the Court of Police, please mandamus this judge to do what he is required by law to do, presumably to dismiss. But as you point out, when it is with, with leave of court, um, the judge has the ability um, and the obligation, I guess, to, to look at it and, and consider it. Um, I just wanted to, to note because of our nonpartisan nature of the Rendell Center, that I was nominated by President Clinton to my post, and you were nominated by President George W. Bush. So of course, as much as we judges hate the, the taglines in the news stories saying who nominated us, I think it's only fair to point out that we have an, an equal opportunity panel here uh, for, this, for this podcast. Um, I guess, uh, have you ever been asked to respond to a mandamus petition? <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was going to say that I wanted, I wanted it noted for the record that I had not, and nor had Judge Rendell ever slapped me down. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, because our panel, and I should point out also the Court of Appeals sits in panels of three. Um, And so this mandamus petition is before three of the uh, District of Columbia Court of Appeals judges. Um, I I was wondering in this high profile type case, depending upon what happens, whether um, whatever is order is issued, if any, from from the court, um, the uh, uh, the court of the court of appeals and bank could take it. Uh, another thing that could happen, uh, the mandamus would be mooted uh, somewhat if the judge were to decide the dismissal motion. Um, that would be an interesting issue if, because usually it's because the judge has failed to do something. And if the judge takes an action, um, it could render what we call it, render it moot, meaning there's no controversy anymore because the judge has decided the issue. Um, any uh, last uh, points that you would like to, to make, Judge Goldberg, about all of this? I know you've taken a lot of time to look into it to, in order to, for us to be discussing this today, but uh, I thought I would give you the kind of the last moment. Yeah, well, one, one um, I, I think we've, we've both made this clear, but for the, for the listener, um, the government's basis for the motion, and, and we, we both acknowledge this is very, very un, unusual, uh, and we haven't seen this, neither you or I have seen this type of thing as trial judges or judges, but their basis is to say, well, there's been new information that's come to light. And based on that new information, and I think that information, I'm not sure, is new records from the FBI. We have determined, that is the Department of Justice, have now determined that even though Mr. Flynn is convicted, is literally convicted, the basis of his conviction for false statements to the FBI can't stand. And the basis for that is to say, maybe he was less than truthful, maybe he was truthful, but what the conviction stands on, the lies were not material. And that's just another way of saying, we're not even going to get to whether he lied or not, because the subject matter about what he lied were not material to the overall Russian investigation. The interview wasn't justified. The government was about to close the case. So upon further review, there's no materiality. That's an element of the crime charged. And that is why we believe there's the charges should just be wiped wiped clean. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, as much as that might appeal to common sense, um, I think, as we said, we we haven't we haven't seen it because that that could occur in other situations, um, and maybe it would be the basis for a, a pardon or or something else along those lines. But it it's it is a unique, uh, I say unique in your and my experience uh, situation. But it's a very complicated matter and we have attempted in these 30 minutes to break it down to its, uh, to the most basic parts of the the rules and the procedure and and the norms. And I uh, thank you so much for being part of this podcast and helping to Uh, Further, the mission of the Rendell Center, which is to educate the next generation of citizens. And with that, I thank you very much, Judge Goldberg, and I'll, I'll see you around the courthouse if we ever get back there.
Uh, that would be great. I'd like to see you in person. You've been listening to Judges on Judging, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. Information about and resources from the Rendell Center are available online at rendellcenter.org. Thanks for listening.